You're listening to Thrive, where every week we have meaningful conversations with incredible women like you, packed with practical tips and sisterly advice to bring you from a life of simply surviving to thriving. It's personal development for the everyday gal who is done with coasting through her days, done with feeling like she's missing out on the deeper meaning of her own life, and done with mediocrity once and for all. Because it's not enough to simply survive, you deserve to thrive. I'm your host, Erica Gwynn, and I'm ready to thrive together. Here's today's episode. It's always a battle in our house. It's all fun and games until I have to yell. No matter what I say or do, my kids just won't listen. Sound familiar? Conscious parenting coach and conscious discipline expert, Joy Morelli-Jackson is an absolute bank of knowledge on Thrive Today. For any fellow moms or dads in the house who want a better, healthier way. As an educator with decades of disciplinary experience under her belt, becoming a parent was a whole new ballgame. And Joy stepped up to the plate to learn all about child psychology and development to better support her own daughter before teaching thousands of other parents about better disciplining their kids. Today on Thrive, we get real and raw with our own personal mom fails and wins. We talk about teaching when they don't feel like being taught, creating routines and basic time management when you have actual timelines to follow, because hello, real life. We also talk about boundary pushing and safely handling total meltdowns and escalated behavior when everyone in the room is totally stressed. Stay tuned through this episode, drop it five stars if you like what you're listening to, and now welcome Joy. Thank you, thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so happy we were able to make this happen because I know I told you this right before we hit record, but I've been such a fan and follower of yours on Instagram myself. My mom first sent me one of your reels, uh, which what feels like forever ago. And you are just the greatest for such real practical parenting advice. But what I especially love about you is like, you keep it real with acknowledging children as people, which can feel so basic to say out loud, but I feel like it's so often forgotten when we're parenting in the moment and you get kind of into this battle of the bosses and your gut instinct might be like, but I'm the parent. And we just totally forget that like, these are just little human beings that are, we're helping navigate this big, scary, crazy world. Um, So I really love that about you and how strong of an emphasis you put on that, but you're kind of in the gentle parenting school of thought and you call it conscious parenting, which I love. So let me just immediately pass you the mic, let you kick us off, introduce yourself and define conscious parenting from the get-go so that we're all kind of on the same page here. Absolutely. So I'm Joy Marily and I'm a former teacher. I was a music teacher for 14 years and moved into school leadership. Um, And becoming a parent changed my life. I became a parent at 36 and I, think I prepared a lot for pregnancy, but not so much for birth because of having so many years in education. I was like, I got this. I understand kids. I'm fine. I was training teachers at this point. My specialty was in um, discipline and classroom management. In addition to supporting teachers in the arts, you know, I was supporting non-classroom teachers with discipline and like transforming classrooms. So I'm like, my child not listening to me is not going to be an issue. I just, I had so much confidence. And that all changed for me when my daughter turned about 14 months. And 
um, the day that it changed for me is like, I can't remember all the details. I just know food was everywhere. She was in the throwing phase and um, my husband works nights. So he was still sleeping. And I just remember cleaning up multiple messes and trying to use my calm, assertive voice that I used in a classroom. I need you to stop. These are things that were effective when I was in a classroom. Like I didn't yell, but calm and assertive usually you know, commanded my presence and my confidence. And that wasn't working on a 14 month old. I was at a complete loss. And um, so I just remember taking my daughter covered in food and plopping her in our bed with my husband and saying, I need a break um, because I was just done. And I came down stairs and was cleaning up the mess she had created in tears. So it was just like my breaking point of something is not connecting and so this speaks to a lot of i think who i am as a person transforming and the fact that i have a master's degree in education i've worked in, in schools for almost 20 years at this point and there was still a knowledge gap that really was frustrating to me that how could i have so much experience with children and still not understand why my 14 month old wasn't listening to me you know and so that's when i started my own research on child development really focusing on the toddler years and understanding the brain. Um, and I am, I totally nerd out on this stuff now. So although my background is in education, the, the information that I share is somewhat, I get to put it in practice in my work as a consultant now, but I really uh, learned so much beyond my degrees, beyond my actual practical experience, because my child sent me into my own, like, you know, self, uh, self, uh, I don't know, my self-education um, in terms of things that were a gap in terms of my education degree. So I'm sorry that that was a long story. I wasn't planning to share all of that, but it's just, it's what led me into this work. Oh, sorry. Beyond all of that, because I have nerded out on this information, I am a teacher at heart. I know that it is my skill set to communicate and share information. Whatever I know, I know how to communicate in you know, in appropriate ways for my audience. And so I've shifted into parent education. In addition to consulting schools now, I'm a conscious parenting coach. And one of the reasons why I have focused on the word conscious, although there's not really a big difference between all of these other terminologies, I think people feel like they have to choose a camp. Am I a gentle parent? Am I a responsive or respectful parent? I've heard so many different terms. I've landed on conscious as being the term that I love to describe the work I'm doing, although it aligns with all of these other practices, is that the word conscious has to do with awareness. And when you bring awareness to a number of things in your parenting, that is where we talk about conscious. And so there were a lot of things that I was very unconscious about. You know, the first step was about the, the develop, is about brain development. And again, two degrees in education, and I still didn't have this information. So understanding, especially the toddler brain, very complex, usually the time period where most parents start having challenges, unless you had like a colicky baby, you know, some people have a lot of challenges in that first year, but beyond that, you know, it can be smooth sailing until you start seeing what they call terrible twos. And for me, that was months before two. So, um, you know, 14 months is where it began. And so one, being conscious of your child's development, being conscious of the things that you are bringing in from your own, the way you were parented into your parenting relationships, the things you're bringing in from society, from your community about the way relationships should look between adults and children. Reevaluating that and deciding how or if that should play a role in the parenting relationship you wanna have with your own child. So bringing awareness to what you're bringing into that parenting and because awareness brings the possibility for choice. 
That is a, a quote from Daniel J. Siegel that I love. And once you're aware of what you're bringing in, then you can decide, is this what I want to continue to bring into my own parenting? And finally, awareness of your child as an individual. Yes, they are on a general traje trajectory of development that aligns with, you know, um, childs with, with your child's particular abilities, and they are a very unique individual. And until you're able to see them as that and not who people tell you they should be, not who you desire them to be, um, the course you've mapped out for them, once you really truly bring an awareness to the fact that this child is very unique and I won't be able to parent in a really effective way until I am very aware of who they are and who they are working to be and honoring that. Um, and then that brings you into conscious parenting. Once you have an awareness of all of those things, you are a conscious parent and it doesn't end. You don't graduate. You're there, there's constant awareness of all of those things and you're working to keep your awareness high in all three of those areas. I love that too. And you shared a quote on Instagram recently that had said, gentle parenting is not about controlling your children gently. It's yeah. about controlling yourself, yes. which is such a good way to like kick off this conversation I feel like because such like I see this as such a big misconception that people have about gentle parenting conscious parenting whatever you want to call it where everyone thinks it just means that you are being permissive or you're just allowing the kid to call all the shots and people are like what what you're the, yeah. you're the grown-up well yeah but oftentimes we let our own past or our own upbringing or our own whatever influence yeah. what we are doing and we're in this reactionary pattern and really it's not the kids that need controlling so much as it is how we are interacting with them that requires the controlling which was like oh I read that and was like oh drop the mic that was <laughs> so good <laughs> yes yes and that and that wasn't my my quote but I was definitely highlighting it from another creator for sure for sure um I also want to note before we start to that like we'll keep it real as we always do on thrive so i'll happily use personal examples to help prove points or get advice i'll be the humble hamster here because yeah. none of us are perfect parents Absolutely. so i think like we're joy and i both we're in the same boat of like me having a four-year-old you having a five-year-old we know yeah. this stage <laughs> well yeah. Um, but that's all good. So feel free to pick apart. If I use a personal example for anything, feel free to just tell me that I blatantly handled something incorrectly. <laughs> there's there's definitely, there's never a right or wrong. There are just other choices that you may have made, but, um, yeah. there is no right or wrong. And I, I just want to stress that because I feel like every once in a while, most people feel as you do that my advice is like real and practical and helpful. <clears throat> And other people feel attacked by it, which is really interesting because they feel like this should be the perfect standard. Um, I am, and I'm encouraging people to be perfect parents and read books and know everything and be perfect. And that's why I, I try to share balance. Of course, this often comes from people who don't consume all of my content because I think I have a fair balance of when I handle things well and I try to handle when I mess the things up and how I corrected it as well because it's about that awareness, being aware of when you mess up, because it's gonna happen, right? We're human. And if you're aware of it and willing to repair with your children and not try to pretend, when you try to pretend you're perfect is when things are problematic because you're trying to you know, create an illusion for the world and for your children. And that sets our children up to think that perfection is a standard for them as well. And they fear mm. making mistakes, but showing our humanity at this point for the inevitable mistakes that we are make, that we will make, 
is so important and is great modeling for our children, especially when we show how to repair when we inevitably mess up. And of course, it's also nuanced because every kid is so different and yes. every parent is so different. Like there's so much, it feels like all of parenting is the gray zone. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, yeah. There's going to be, right? There's going to be, there, there's not even necessarily like, this is right, this is wrong. It's just all kind of on this spectrum that you figure out as you exactly. go. And every day, exactly. heck, every moment can be very, very different. So yes. um, can you also break down conscious discipline? And what yeah. that what that means or looks like, because I know this is something um, for any mom friends listening. We had a past episode with De uh, my friend Destiny, Destiny Ann on Instagram, who I love, and she. So we already kind of explained. All right, dis discipline comes from the root word for disciple. So contrary to what so many think as this being like a punitive thing, it's really thinking about teaching our children and not just correct, correct, correct. We're trying to look at that a little bit differently. So what does conscious discipline kind of look like for you in practical parenting? Yeah. So I would say it's not much different than what I described as parenting. I specifically use the word discipline. One, I, I, I agree with um, Destiny Ann's definition. I share, you know, that same information with folks that we are working toward teaching our children how to navigate their world in socially appropriate ways and developmentally appropriate stages. We give them that information. But I use the word discipline because, um, you know, when you say parenting all around, I, do, I want people to know that I'm like, I am not a sleep specialist. I'm not a potty training specialist. You know, a lot of times people have very specific needs around um because there's so many aspects of parenting, right? Like I have a picky eater or can you, and, and I, and so I focus on discipline because people automatically understand we're talking about children's behaviors. And those are the aspects that I lean into. Your child is doing something that is undesirable in terms of how they're behaving and, for, you know, for you or other people giving you a hard, you know, quote unquote, hard time. That's the work that I focus on, but it is the same. It's just combining all of those things. You are disciplining your children you're using discipline you are teaching your children with an awareness of those areas that um i mentioned earlier that without that awareness you're likely going to be punitive you're likely going to use something that is not the true definition of discipline and once you have that awareness there's not a rule book it's just like once you're aware of all those things what to do next starts to just feel intuitive yeah i love that well right off the bat we probably have some folks in a similar boat as me thinking like okay I love this. I actively attempt this, but my very strong willed four-year-old who granted is a smart little cookie, but she thinks she doesn't need teaching. Sometimes yeah. she thinks she's got it already. She would rather struggle and scream her way through something than trying to be taught sometimes, whether that's like doing her own hair, she she'll pull out clumps of hair before she will let me actually sit down with her or like playing the piano. Mama's got 25 years playing the piano under my belt, but she she's like, mom, I got twinkle, twinkle, little star. I'm good. I don't need to be yes. taught this. So yeah. when you see situations like that, where you're like, all right, the, she loves to learn, but there's a resistance to, to being taught sometimes. Yeah. What do you think is going on there for people? Like, am I missing something as a parent, as an opportunity to be on board with the teaching moment? to make everyone's lives easier? Or is this just something where you is like developmental sometimes where try as you might to teach, sometimes you're just gonna have 
a, a brick wall in front of you where they're like, I'm good. I don't need this today. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is, it's a, a complicated, it's not a simple answer. And I actually, my response to this kind of leans more into my Montessori world. Um, I'm a Montessori homeschooler. And so Montessori is something that I started studying. Again, I'm not like a trained guide, but there's so much information out there that I started studying when my daughter was about 18 months. And so it's just part of our lifestyle. And in that method, you might may have heard the term following the child. And so there are a couple of things that I take away from Montessori in those moments. It doesn't make it less frustrating, right? When you're just like, I just wanna um, get through this moment. But one is in these moments when they just feel like they have it, just let them in those. I mean, unless there's like a, you can set a, a boundary around like something that's going to make a huge mess or things like that. This is not about permissiveness. But let's, let's just say like the playing the piano, right? You have a lot to offer. And she right now um, feels like I, I don't need that information at this point, right? There's going to be a point where she, there is going to become an awareness between her perceived abilities and reality. That is, it's going to happen, you know, where it's just like, this is not, I'm not as strong at this as I think. And the thing is, is that this kind of, we, we can take the, the kind of two positions of, you don't have this, let me knock you down a peg, right? So that, and, and, and the most, you know, we're not, we're not, I'm saying this in like what we're actually doing when we're just like, no, you don't know how to do this. Let me show you, you're not good at this, right? That's actually what we're saying. That's actually what they're hearing where our children in this first plane of development up to age six, like everything is possible. I am the fastest, I am the tallest, in fact. You know how we see them compare height and their arms angle up to someone who might be seven <laughs> inches taller than so them? So true. Right? They are the best at everything. They live in this world where they, you know, it's really important to their identity to be bigger, better, stronger, faster, and more capable than everyone around them. and. This is the stage, if not, a, you know, any other point to just let them kind of live in that perception of their abilities, because there will come a point where they're, they have a stronger sense of reality and they are going to be very self-critical. And this is not very far from now. And um, they are going to reach out for help, for support, right? And if we spend this first plane of development telling them that we don't think that they're capable, we are not going to be the, the people that they feel like they can come to to help them when mm. they need that guidance right so and right. so it is it is a a frustrating period of time and and i find myself in the middle but let me just will you just take a moment let me just let me if you just wait a second i can show you and you're doing all of that and then at some point you're just like you know the definition of insanity right i'm doing the same thing and just let it go because the odds are they're not going to do major damage in just freely exploring something right i know that my fear um, as a musician, I don't want them to have bad habits ingrained, right? Like, and the odds of that through exploration are pretty slim through if it's just pure exploration. So I, I would say one is for certain things, letting them go. Another thing is looking at it as like, if they're in the middle of doing something at Montessori, the idea, you don't interrupt children in the middle of work. Right, because because of the self-esteem impact, even if they're doing something wrong, you take note of what they're doing wrong. You take a mo another moment that feels like less pressure to model it correctly. So, for instance, my daughter, there's a lot of activities as we were learning number sense was confusing six and nine all the time. 
and you know with different activities and i could say no 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 that's six no no that's six that's nine that's six and i could have done that and what you notice when you constantly stop and correct kids they lose interest very quickly they're just like after two or three corrections like i don't want to do this anymore and this is it's pretty consistent i'm sure everyone has experienced this because it's a self-esteem thing you are making me feel bad about myself you are shattering my amazing worldview of myself and i don't want part, any part of this and so then we lose them all together in montessori instead you take note of the misunderstanding and take another opportunity before they get started to model it to model what it should be and then see what they take away so i'll watch my daughter make that mistake i take note and some other time i'll simply model i'm like you know the number six stands on its head. Do you see this? Look at this number six, it stands on its head. And look, the number nine stands on one foot. Can you be a number nine with me? And we'll play with that. Can you stand on your head like a number six? Just leave it out there. And then they'll come back and you'll see whether they applied it or not when you're actually in the context of doing something more formal. And they either got it or they did it. And if they did it, you take note and you're like, let me shift this, let me do it another time. Let me find another time to reinforce this. But this maintains the dignity of the child. And it seems like, you know, we've all been schooled in a way where no one lets you do things wrong. They're like, no, 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 I have to correct you right, right now. And Montessori, once the child works, you're just observing and you correct, but not in the moment of their working. You, you correct through modeling. You, you teach by teaching, not by correcting, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but in another moment, not outside of, I have to, I have to stop you, which is a self, you know, impacts their worldview, uh, you just find another time. Yeah, I love that. When you maybe are in a situation where you don't have the opportunity to allow for totally free exploration of things, like you're doing, you're handling routines or you're yep. teaching basic time management to help everyone get on the same page and like out the door on time uh, yep. and things start to go off track because I'm sure we all yep. can relate for as much buffer time as we might give, they've still got brains of their own. They start doing their own thing. They just decide they don't feel like doing it today. Um, and you're like, oh no, it's gotta get done before we leave yeah. the house. So now we're in kind of a, a tussle here, a, an appointment yeah. or preschool drop-off or whatever. Yeah. How do you effectively motivate them to do the things they don't feel like doing or they don't want to do, especially when we know as adults that sometimes we just gotta do it. And you don't necessarily like you, you are, you do have like that hard, hard stop here. And they're just like, mom, I'm not feeling it today. We're not, yes. we're not playing this, playing that game. Yes. So there, there's so many things. There's not a singular answer to this one having routines, um, is important for things to just feel normalized. Right. And so that's the first thing is having, doing the same thing in the same way as often as possible helps with minimizing some resistance. And so I'll always start with, because I think so often we think of, how do I solve the problem right now when the problem is happening, as opposed to how do we avoid the problem? And really whenever I'm working with a parent is how do we set up the systems to minimize the challenges to begin with? Because some of these are just about, this is going to be easier if you put some things in place and not to say I will address even like there it will be exceptions, but we do have to think about the planning and the care that we're putting into on a regular basis that make regular routines and transitions easier. Um, a second thing would be, especially if you're dealing with a child six or under, is that autonomy is hugely important. That you want your kids to move through these routines and they're just like, but I want to put on my shoe, but I want to put on my shoe, but I want, and you're just like, I don't have time for you to put on my shoe, right? If you're not spending the time 
to give them autonomy in other aspects of their life, thinking about it constantly throughout the day, you are going to have that battle every single day. And so a for instance I'll give is that my daughter went through a period of time where fastening her own seat belts in her car seat was hugely important to her. This was, you know, it, it meant the world for her to work on this, but she did not have the fine motor skills yet to do it. But I knew how important this was to her. And so as often as I could, I planned ahead and thought about this. I'm gonna let you, and it would, it would be 95 degrees outside in the summer. And I would stand there and let her struggle with this thing, you know, for a while until I could step in, you know? And then because this was a routine that I knew that she was going to be fixated on this until she mastered it, that I had to constantly make time for this. I had to talk to her dad about it too and say, listen, give yourself a couple of extra minutes because this is really important to her, right? And then there's the times when I do not have time. And then I would prepare her for this. I would say, listen, I, we're, when we leave right now, I do not have time for you to work on your seatbelt. I need you, I am going to put on your seatbelt today. I, you know that I usually let you work on it, but we don't have time today. And so I talk about this. I just kind of created this acronym a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it's PEE in order to resist uh, like, to reduce battles, you help your kids pee, right? And so first is preparing. So this is that's the first thing I did there, is I prepared her for the transition. The second thing is empowering them. And so now I know I've just taken away something for you. And for kids under six, having power and control and autonomy over things is something they're obsessed with. So I can think about, so you can't do that, but do you wanna press the button on my key? to unlock the door yourself? Do you want to open the door yourself? Okay, um, when I, do you want to hold one side of it as I clip it? You give them like something else to make them feel autonomy important that is going to empower them in this moment. And that, that reel you mentioned the other day about like turning, my, my, my daughter having to leave a birthday party early is an example of that. You give them things to empower them. And finally, if that doesn't do it, you can think about the third, the second E, which is engage them, make it fun. So I'm telling you that you're not going to be able to close the seatbelt. I'm doing it today, but do you want to race me to the car? Do you want to see if you can count to five? Can, can you count down from five to zero while I close your seatbelt? I wonder if I can do it in five seconds. If I don't get it, you're the winner, right? Like just something that now turns this away from, I am taking this away from you. You have no power to something that's fun that they actively want to participate in. So I can apply that to all of these situations where a lot of the ways to, to, to handle these situations is by thinking about it ahead of time to avoid them. But when you're actually in the moment, this doesn't mean that you have to give in. There are times when we have to set clear boundaries. You didn't think it of it in, in advance. You didn't prepare. You didn't know this thing was going to upset them. You didn't know they wanted this so bad. Like someone um, posted something the other day on online that said, hell hath no fury like a toddler who didn't have an opportunity to press a button. Oh, so true. <laughs> Right. And we don't always think about it. Right. You just press that elevator button or you just press the button that you didn't know that they really were invested in pressing. And now you're dealing with a meltdown. There are times you can try to apologize. You can try all these things. And then you can also there are times where you're just like, listen, I can see you're really upset. I'm going to have to pick you up and we're going to have to go. Right. Like you can explain the limit that you're setting and hold firm to it. And you can do it in a kind way. You're not punishing them for being who they are but you are setting the boundary. It's okay to set boundaries and it's okay that they're not okay with it. 
we are not working as a conscious parent to say that you're never going to do th something that's going to make your child cry. Um, it's not because you're intentionally harming them. It's just that they're having a hard time accepting the boundary and that's appropriate and normal. Yeah. When they are in this stage of boundary pushing, which like you said, it's a very developmentally on track thing. It's going to happen. Um, and that obviously also comes with a whole new set of trials and tests for us as yep. parents. Um, walk us through what to do or maybe what not to do when you're navigating how many times to request something or give an instruction before there is some sort of logical consequence. If there is some sort of logical consequence. I know this is something my girlfriends and I have chatted about all the time where, yeah. and I saw a meme on this on Instagram where it was like the gentle parenting leaving my body after the 48th request to put on their shoes. Like yeah. where it's just, yeah. you're like, all right, we've tried before okay, we see X is distracting you from the goal here of getting your teeth brushed. So that's going to go in this other room until you're able to finish that. But then even still, they think they're like, oh, you're punishing me. Like, this is terrible. So what's what's your advice there for everyone? So I think a lot of it in terms of like them feeling like it's a punishment can come from the way you're framing things, right? Like the, the tone at which you're removing that distraction. But I'd say... Let's rewind with first the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, <laughs> expecting a different result. So by the time you say something one or two times and you see that your child is listening, one, do not see this simply as an act of defiance, right? At, for the most part, this is not boundary pushing. This is, there are a number of things that can happen. Important to understand that children's verbal processing skills aren't fully developed until age 14. And I don't think that people think about this. And we know our children are hearing us. They're hearing us. It doesn't mean that they have process the direction fully. And they may have made eye contact with us. They, there are all of these things that we see as I know full well that they are defying me because I know they heard me, right? And there's a difference between hearing and processing, right? And then processing and acting because there is also the, the thing of their impulse control and, and are they able to press the brakes on doing something in the way that we want them to? Um, the, the another thing to consider is that their priorities are different than ours. As adults, we expect that children, and this we've been indoctrinated into a system like this. We have figure all authority expects that people who are below them in the hierarchy need to shift their priorities away from their own to that of the authority figure. That is our expectation. Whenever we expect someone to drop what they're doing, it's because we want them to internalize the idea that whatever you want, need, desire, are focused on is not as important as what the needs, wants, desires, or foci of the authority figure is. And although that's not what we're actually thinking, because it just translates to, I said something, do it, but they might be in the midst of doing something. Like, as you just said, they're doing something and we're just like, yes, stop focusing on what you value and focus on what I value, you know? And so once we can realize that that's part of what's happening, our children are completely separate human beings from us. And that this is not a defiance against you. Once you shift it from, their priority is different than mine in this moment, then you can stop feeling like it's a personal attack or an affront to your authority that your child is not responding to you. They're in the middle of something, right? And so this doesn't mean that we, we let them stay in the middle of that thing, especially if it's time sensitive and we need them to go. But one, you need to change your proximity. Stop barking orders from across the room, from a different room, from upstairs or downstairs, and thinking that your children will just that simply, that they have internalized the idea that their priorities aren't that important. They haven't internalized that idea. We can break them into thinking what you value and what's important to you is not as important as authority figures, but we have to think about the long-term consequence of what that message does to our children. But 
we can now talk about how when you say something like how it impacts the community right it's as opposed to always being about your authority i said is how this interaction impacts the environment how it impacts our community how it impacts our trust depending on your child how it impacts our relationship and why these are important you can talk about this outside of these moments but one is change strategy stop repeating yourself stop and you're more than likely when your child is not doing what you need after that many directions it's because they need more support they need modeling mm -hmm. they need scaffolding they need interference they need to make eye contact they need to be able to understand your direction perhaps through seeing it i need you to stop let me here's you're on your video game let me step in the, the front of the screen baby baby i need you to stop now we have to go right and as you said if it's it's important that we leave now because we have some place to go. I know that this is important to you. I'm validating what you feel. I know you really want to play this game. That's important to you. I understand that. And the family has to go at this moment. So I'm going to turn it off. I'm going to, in fact, going to unplug, unplug it just so, you know, depending on the age of your kid, if you think they're savvy enough to do all of that, or I'm going to take this phone or whatever this thing is that's creating the, or this toy, I'm going to help you put it away. Come with me, let me take your hand. We're gonna walk into the bathroom so we can get your face washed up, right? That is the support, this is the scaffolding that they need. And a lot of times because our first inclination is defiance and how do I correct defiance as opposed to how do I discipline? How do I teach the gap that's here? Because the biggest lesson to learn is your children want to be in good relationship with you. They want you to be happy. They want to, they don't wanna piss you off. And once you really, really accept that, you can start rethinking these moments of perceived defiance as communicating a lacking skill, communicating a, a, a need, communicating so many different things that are not, hey, I had nothing better to do today than to ruin your day and to piss you off by just blatantly ignoring you. That I guarantee, unless we are dealing with some sociopathic behavior, that is not the vast majority of our children, right? Like. There's something else up, so we have to shift gears. I love that. I know we keep bringing up the same reel with that you shared with um, being at the birthday party. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, we'll make sure your Instagram is linked in show notes so everybody can go and check it out and see it firsthand because it was such a good illustration. Um, mm -hmm. But something that you had mentioned in that and kind of building right off of, okay, with the boundaries and getting them to do the things they just kind of got to do. Um, an example you gave in that was at first she had just responded to you and said no. And mm -hmm. you were explaining why essentially you need to not just say, okay, you can't just say no to me, but model what is an appropriate response instead, where maybe you can kind of say, give me a few <clears> minutes, <throat> or is it okay if we do this in XYZ, whatever. So building off of that, <laughs> we talked about this a little bit before hitting record, what's the best way to kind of teach them accountability when they are so young? And when, if you're saying, okay, in five minutes, or give me a second, they have no idea the concept of time and what that means and looks like. So you want to teach them to be true to their word or whatever, or that when they say, okay, five minutes and the timer goes up, then you actually do have to do it. Um, how do you kind of navigate that where you're, you're trying to kind of work with them on their own desired time frame, but at yeah. the same time, developmentally, they have no time is 
a construct. <laughs> so there's, there's two things. And one is, you know, part of the awareness that's really important when I talked about, you know, conscious discipline or parenting is being aware of your child's developmental stage, as I mentioned, and what is realistic and having developmentally appropriate expectations, right? So I have, since my daughter was at least four, we have zero issues leaving the park, right? Um, and I still see people five and six struggling full out battles with their kids at this point. And that was, it, it could be temperament and personality. I, I, I credit it to some extent to consistency in this regard that it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, like negotiating. It's kind of like I started moving, but let me start. Let me go back to your question about uh, time because there's so many things I can say about this. One, you can use one, understand ch children in the first plane of development up to age six really very much lack a sense of time. If you didn't know that they generally live in the present tense. Um, and that's why, like their brain, they, and this doesn't mean that they can't think about future or talk about the past, but where they currently exist is mostly present, which is why when you they say, are we there yet? And you say, no, they are asking you two minutes later. It's the reason why you say, can I have something? They say, no, and they'll ask you one second later for that same thing. Or like my daughter, I was out of town for business, you know, and I was on the other side of the country. And she said, how many minutes before you get here? You know, I was on my way. <laughs> at that point and I was oh, in Idaho yeah on the west coast so the, you know it's it's very there's so many things that we see about this too to prove that their sense of time is pretty off or the reason why we often don't want to tell our children that we're about to do something until the last minute because they will harass you endlessly about when you're leaving regardless of how many times you've explained that we're not going until the afternoon and you learned like you know what I'm not going to tell you <laughs> if we're going at three I'm not telling you until two I'll tell you when we're getting in the car where we're going that kind of thing because even then I'm not going to be able to tolerate are we there yet in the car we learn all of these things again not because they're trying to irritate us it's they're they are sh clearly showing us how limited they are with this, this concept of time. So one way to support that, even as we set timers to prepare visual timers so they can see the time decreasing is really helpful, but is to use other increments that they can understand. If you're in the park, you have five more slides before we're ready to go. You can, like my daughter on, on the swing, I'm good, how many times should I push you? This is where empowering can come in. Should I push you 10 more times or 12 more times, you know? And I'm gonna push and I'll let you come back and let her decide. And until her sense of number, number sense increases, you know, sometimes she'd choose the smaller number because she didn't know. She's more savvy now at five about trying to choose the biggest number possible. But even notice that me giving her two numbers, she, she still is empowered because she got to choose it. She doesn't realize that I limited her options very much. But this is all about understanding the way your children's brain work. They get a little older, they're gonna say, wait a second, I wanna choose the number, I choose 100, right? But this is why this largely works with that first plane of development child is that they feel empowered even though you have given them two out of infinite options. So the number of times they do something can help them with that time management. And then depending on your child, you're not, you know, don't put yourself in the position of, your child's being at the very top of the slide that you can't reach without climbing up a ladder and saying it's time to go right because now you're in you have put yourself in the impossible situation of now am i going to climb up this ladder and chase my child around this park right you give you put them in a position where if they are still struggling with that impulse control with that ability to leave without a big fight then you have to 
like let's just say it's the slide situation five more slides guess who's going to be standing right at the bottom of the slide to grab your hand or to pick you up at number five this is the support that i'm providing you because that's what you need at this age right they'll get older and they won't need that support but that is your job and knowing where they are developmentally it will click the consistency of it's time to go and for my daughter it has it's like five more minutes Here's the timer. I'm I she's in the tunnel of the slide. I'm letting her hear that thing ring. And then when she sees me, I start walking. I don't say, okay, it's time to go, because that's what they learn when you just stand still. And in a lot of those moments, when you stand still, it's like, oh, we get to negotiate now. Now's the time for negotiation. It's either walk and follow me or I'm picking you up. That's timer went off. I have you in a position to model what timer goes off looks like. We can't put that responsibility on the child. We model by using our um larger size, <laughs> you know, gently, right? We're not grabbing them, snatching them up. It's just like, oh, yay, number five. Come on, let's go. Do you want to race to the car? Do you want to hop with me? And now I'm making it engaging. I'm making it fun. Um, it's about cooperation, but the modeling happens through the doing, not let's negotiate from the top of the slide when the alarm goes off. You have to control those kind of things. Yeah. When you've done, when you've had those moments yourself where you, you start walking, have you ever had it where she didn't actually follow? And then you had to think like, all right, do I, am I sitting in the car? Am I going back? What's happening there? Because my, my husband has done that a few times where he'll be like, all right, I'm going. And then I'm always like, babe, you can't say that. Cause she's going to think you're abandoning her. Like she's going to think you're like going to leave without her or something like that. And we don't want to do that. So, yeah. what, what, so what? I frame it. I don't frame it as a threat. I don't frame it, frame it as if you don't come, I'm leaving you. I never, as you said, I, I don't, that is not how it's framed. It's time to go, right? And so it's in a positive thing. Come on, it's time to go. This is what time to go looks like. If you consistently model it's time to go, I stand still and wait for you to come. That is what is internalized. Time to go, alarm goes off means I stand still. <laughs> and we talk about it, that you actually are teaching that as the routine, if that's what you do. I like model, oh, it's time to go, come on. And I start walking. I don't frame it as a threat, right? And you have to play with it, right? Because we have ch children with different levels of testing. And if you have a child who you've attempted that and they're not coming and it's just like, oh, you need my help. You're not coming. You need my help. I'm picking you up. We're going. The, the thing is that I think people misunderstand with gentle parenting is they think everything has to be a negotiation. That's what people say. I'm not about to negotiate everything with my kid. And that's not because this is an authoritative parenting style where it's, you know, we have like high high developmentally appropriate expectations, but high levels of support as well. Part of support includes picking up your children. <laughs> like part of that is part of it. Part of support is I'm picking you up and you're kicking and screaming and you're not happy about it, but I'm giving you empathy because I understand that you're upset about this. I understand that leaving the park is hard. I understand leaving your friends is hard. I understand cleaning up toys is hard. So the support is not that I'm giving in and, and you do whatever you want all day long. It's support in helping you meet the expectation, the developmentally appropriate expectation. It's support in you having a hard time accepting this boundary. I know. It's not, well, that's what you get because I told you, you know, it's not about constantly flexing your authority because that is not the relationship you're seeking to form with your child. It's about, I know this is hard. I know what I'm asking you to do is hard. It's time to go. You're, you're, I see, you're so sad. I get it, I get it, right? And that's the support. 
but we're still going. We're leaving in the car. If I have, do you want to put on your seatbelt or do I need to help you? I'm still supporting you, but it's just not from an authoritarian hierarchical perspective. Yeah, for sure. Building off of that, if they are clearly escalated, uh, or if they're, if they start being, you know, blatantly rude or unsafe or doing a behavior that, you know, they know is not okay, but they're, they're there. Like they're, they're screaming. Um, what's your thought process and response, especially if you're kind of unsure in the moment, what's best and safest for all, you know, like, do you leave them alone in a space to cool off? Or is that teaching them to be isolated with their feelings when their feelings are anger or sadness or whatever? Do you try to physically embrace them for a hug or restrain them if they're swinging arms at people at the risk of hurting others? Or is that an inappropriate physical boundary that you're putting in place? You know, like how, how does your brain assess the situation in the moment when they are at an escalated state? You're trying really hard to not be in an escalated state yourself. And you're trying to move into a healthy response mode instead of having a knee-jerk reaction where you're just like, what, what little human combusting in front of me, like what's going on? Yes. Um, I, I am trying so hard not to be long-winded. It's just a complicated question, but one, I want to reframe, <laughs> I want to re reframe one of the things you said, which is how do you respond when you know, they know what they're doing is inappropriate. And so the reframing mm. there is that when our children are dysregulated, when they are regulated, they know not to do those things. When a child is dysregulated, they are not using the logic and reasoning at, um, part of their brain. And so for any listeners that are not aware of this, you know, the prefrontal cortex of your brain is where logic, reasoning, predicting the consequence of your actions, um, emotional regulation is all, all located. All um, impulse control, all higher order functions are there. The lower part of your brain, which is often referred to as the downstairs brain, is where all your emotional center is. It is where the amygdala and the fight or flight response is triggered. And once your amygdala, which is the brain's trigger for protecting itself into fight or flight or freeze, you might have seen different dysregulated behaviors from our children. The ones that concern us most are the fight or flight ones to fight primarily. Um, once it's triggered, it takes a little bit to calm them down. But what happens is they lose access to the upstairs part of their brain when they are triggered. So if you don't have access to your impulse control, if you don't have access to your logic and reasoning and all of the logical things you know, if you don't, if you've really lost access to um, the part of your brain that helps with your impulse control, you are not acting willfully or intentionally in this moment. This is for adults too. Like a lot of times people will say, I blacked out, like in moments of fury, road rage incidents, right? People are doing things that they know they shouldn't, but the dysregulation, like let's just say someone cut you off, your amygdala fired because of that safety concern, right? This person almost killed me, almost harmed my family. I'm not thinking with my brain, I'm chasing them down the street, right? And you would not do that. You know, if you're, if you didn't have, if your brain did not trigger you into, you know, this, this fear for your life moment that was created, we see all the time. It's like, she was a librarian. I can't imagine that she drove after a person, right? Like th those kinds of things, because they're not, we're not working with like who we truly are in those moments. And so, we have to understand that. And let me add to that, the, the prefrontal cortex with all of that higher order skills is not fully developed until our mid twenties. So not only do they like lack access, the acts, once their amygdala is fired, they it blocks access to all that logic and reasoning. 
it, it blocks access to an upstairs floor that is still under construction, right? Like that's not even fully formed. And so even if you have a 10 year old, they are only, they're not even halfway through that process. So there's just so much empathy that we have to have. It doesn't mean that you deal with all of it. So now one that I just wanted to start with that for the reframing of they know better because this is not about what they know at this point. They are, they are completely acting on instinct. The amygdala causes you to act before you think. That's the purpose of it. That is the purpose of the life-saving reaction is for you to act before you think. So they are not thinking about you. They're not thinking about what you've told them before. They're not thinking about what they've learned. They're not thinking about the last time you punished or threatened them for the same exact behavior. All of that is gone. So now let's think about who we're working with. You cannot now bring logic and reasoning to a dysregulated child until their body is feeling calm and safe again. Trying to negotiate or rationalize with a dysregulated child is fruitless and pointless. So you're first trying to appeal to get the upstairs brain back online, which is like, I see you're upset. So talking about the flailing kid, removing them from the situation. Once again, you're, you are not being safe with your body. I'm going to hold your arms. I'm going to take you away from here. I'm, and, and so I agree with you. Yes, we don't want to leave them alone to feel the shame of their feelings and emotions in that moment. Yes, we're working on one to help calming, validating emotions. I know you're so angry. I know you're so angry. Focus on what they're feeling before moving into correcting. We most of the time, let's just say, your kid did something, let's say another kid took their toy. They hit that kid. <gasps> yes, I'm so embarrassed. People saw this. And our first instinct is to correct because we know other people are looking at us, right? You cannot do, I'm not going to, and that escalates our kids right away because what you're not seeing is that they did this because of their own frustration, their lack of impulse control, their, their inability to regulate their own emotions. They felt anger. Right. And so when we just come in on you don't do that. How dare and you're just like, hey, hey, did you not see the injustice that just happened to me? That's how the child is feeling. You're attacking me for this injustice. Right. And so we can start with the de-escalation process by simply saying, wow, I can see you're so upset. I can see you're so upset, but I cannot let you hurt people. Come, we're going to we're going to move into another room. If you can't hold them if your child is big enough or just in a position where holding them just feels more unsafe you move them to a space even it have to it has to be in your yard or in a space where in their own room where if something gets broken it's just like hey that's your stuff you you can move them into those spaces but there's not a clear-cut answer every child is different some children need physical comfort you you pay attention to what escalates or de-escalates some kids want you to touch them, some leave me alone. Some kids need that that verbal validation to help calm them. Some are like, shut up. My daughter doesn't say that, but when she was about two or three and I was trying to de-escalate her, she'd say things, stop saying words, stop saying words. And I was like, ooh. And so for my daughter, um, who is very, very physically active, moving her body helped de-escalate her. Come on, let's go for a walk. Like we're moving, we're moving, having her jump on the couch into my arms was more effective than saying, oh, I see you're so upset. Let's take deep breaths. None of that stuff works for my daughter. Getting her active and moving like exercise can de-escalate people. Going for a walk, repetitive actions can de-escalate. Once you de-escalate, keep them safe, your priority, get them to a safe space, make sure people around them are safe, calm it. Once they're calm, now you can speak to reason. When you're upset, if someone takes your toy, now I'm disciplining, now I'm teaching. You can say, don't take my toy. If they still take it, you can ask a grown up for help. 
right? Give them the tools to how to handle. You were angry, you were frustrated, and I'm naming that emotion because for especially the younger our children are, their heart starts racing fast, they feel flushed in their ears, they don't know what that is. They don't know, their bodies just react. We give them the language to help them navigate that so that they now know, oh, my ears are hot, my heart is racing, oh, I'm angry. What can I do when I'm angry? What did mom tell me? Right. The, but we're going to have to do this a million times, right? Because this is built. This is a skill. This is not defiance. We are building skills in our children. And once the and and they will with repeated exposure, like anything else, if you teach them, you know, math skills, we know they don't get that overnight, like, the, you know, learning to read years process. It's a year that all of these things are skills in the same way. And so once we see that we are teaching skills and the next time it happens and you ask them, once they calm down, someone took your toy, what you were feeling angry, huh? what can you do when you're angry? I don't know. Oh, let me teach you again. It didn't stick. Let me stick. And then one day you're going to see them take a deep breath in the moment of someone taking their child. They're going to ball up their fist. They're going to take a big breath and they're going to say, don't take my toy. Mommy, he took my toy. And you're going to be like, oh, look at that, right? Like they, they got it. Right. And it's got that when that moment comes together where they their, their developmental level, the skill set aligns, their ability to press the brakes, all of that has to come into perfect synchronicity for them to behave in ways that are socially acceptable. Um, and when we can see that, that it is just like teaching other like we, we see it clearly with academic skills, right? They're not going to get this overnight. We see it with potty training. They're not going to get this overnight if we can see behavior as skills in those same vein then we'll have more patience, we'll give them more grace, and we'll emphasize teaching over correcting. Yeah, all so good. Well, on that note, Joy, we can't thank you enough for coming on Thrive because this is just such a wealth of knowledge for uh, parents everywhere. So on that, I want to wrap up with asking you what we ask everyone to close out the show, which is what does Thrive mean to you and how do you strive to thrive in your everyday life? Ooh, fastball. Um, <laughs> I see, especially in the world of parenting, thriving as feeling good, not meaning that everything is always perfect. I think if we strive for perfection, I think my goal is striving for recovering, right? Is, is learning how to effectively recover in a way that we can bring equilibrium back into the relationship with our children, with our partners. And then I feel like I'm doing good, where I'm not always leaving things on the downward spiral, not leaving things in like when I dropped the ball, not leaving things in the place where we don't feel good, but learning how to recover from that. Um, and I think it's an important place because so many people, when I talk about conscious parenting, at least people who are, you know, think don't fully understand it and, and don't really see children's full humanity, you know, they'll talk about all of the hardships of their childhood and say, we survived, I survived it. And I really, I end up using this term thrive a lot. I'm like, why is survival a standard? You know, I think we can raise above survival being a standard for our existence and moving into thriving, but thriving does not mean perfection either. And so I think that in terms of everything, I encourage my, my, the parents that I work with, my, my following on social media, mistakes are going to happen. Let's focus on what it looks like to repair and recover because when we can, kind of ride a wave, you know, thriving is a wave. It's just like, we don't want, it's not going to look like it's constantly ascending. It's not going to be on a descent. That's exactly what we want to avoid. 
but riding a wave to me is thriving and being able to, you know, we bring it back up, there'll be downs, but it, there's always going to be a wave that brings us back up. I love that. Tell everybody where they can find you online to connect with you more. You can find me on Instagram at Joy Marilee. Um, my, that's my middle name, M-A-R-I-L-I-E. And on, on TikTok, same thing, Joy Marilee. And you can find um, more of my courses and offerings at joymarilee.com. Wait, before you go, make sure you're subscribed to never miss an episode of Thrive. Drop five stars on your way out if you like what you just listened to. And come join the party on Instagram at thrive.podcast to stay inspired and thriving all week long. Thanks for tuning in. It's your time to thrive.